0: We're reading from Romans 6, 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in the newness of life. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey his passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, church family. If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the sixth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. And Paul is writing this letter to the people living in Rome to share with them the revelation, or we could say the unveiling, of the good news of Jesus Christ, or we could say the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel is a word that means good news. And at the very start of the letter, we find what we could consider to be a thesis statement. This is Romans 1, 16 and 17. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith." And so what we have seen in these first five chapters of Romans is that righteousness before God isn't something that we need to earn. Rather, it's something we receive by grace through faith. God gives his righteousness to sinners on the basis of belief in Jesus. It's on account of Jesus' death in our place that we can receive this righteousness. And this, of course, is very good news. We saw that when a person places their faith in Jesus, they are justified. That is, they are instantaneously declared to be not guilty, and they have right standing before God. And if you've heard all this before, I still hope it strikes you as radical because this really is unique among all the religions and philosophies of the world. Well, there was a, a, a time in my life when I, I listened to a lot of Tim Keller sermons. I still enjoy listening to Tim Keller, but there was a season where I listened to a bunch of his messages. And some of you know this. He he, he pastored a church in Manhattan for many, many years. And uh, recognizing that he was ministering to a bunch of nerdy New Yorkers, New Yorkers kind of pride themselves there in Manhattan on, on being more intellectual than the rest of the country, I noticed that he he what he would do is, um, recognizing this, he would sort of anticipate the objections and the, the questions that those listening might have, and he would say something along the lines of, now I know what you're thinking, and then he would go on to address a potential question that might have arisen in someone's mind. Well, in a very similar way, we have the Apostle Paul here, who has been a missionary for 20 years at this point when he's writing this letter, and he knows the natural question that arises when someone hears the gospel. And that question is this. If our good deeds are worthless for earning our salvation, then why be good at all? I mean, what's the point, right? And so in Romans 6 verse 1, Paul asks this rhetorical question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, if everything depends on what God has done, then does it matter how we live? And I just want us to notice here that when the apostle, Paul, explains the gospel, and he's probably pretty good at it, right? That when he explains this, th- this is the question that comes up. It's not, hey, Paul, um, let me just make sure I understand how we're justified by God, before God. So, you know, if, if I have all this straight, uh, so I, I can't drink, smoke, uh, or uh, or cuss or chew or go with folks who do, right? No. That's not the question. People aren't asking for clarification on the rules and the requirements. It's it's the exact opposite, isn't it? He he goes to such great lengths to stress the grace of God in our salvation. He, 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 He emphasizes, he comes down so heavy on this being a free gift the, the logical objection to his teaching is, well, does it even matter how we live? I mean, why not just go on, go on doing whatever we want? If salvation is a result of Christ's work and not our own, if it has nothing to do with our moral effort, doesn't this just swing the door open to immoral living? This reminds me of a conversation I had several years ago with uh, two young men who were uh, going through the neighborhood door to door. And uh, they said they wanted to talk about spiritual matters. So uh, I said a quick prayer in my mind, and I invited them in. And they said they believed the Bible to be the inspired word of God. And I said, no, I, I, I do too. And uh, eventually I, I turned the conversation to the crux of the matter. The, the essential belief that distinguishes the Christian faith from all other religions. We talked about what the Bible has to do teach us about salvation by grace, and uh, what we see in the first five chapters of Romans. I had uh, two long conversations with these young men, and then uh, they came back a few nights later with an older, more senior member of their organization. And uh, once again, we, we had a conversation about how one can be saved. And they said they believed in salvation by grace. And I'm thinking, well, this is great. So I asked, I said, okay, well then, um, can, can you explain to me why your religion teaches that you have to do all these other requirements as well? Why, why are these things necessary? And they said, oh, yeah, th- those are necessary uh, because we're saved by grace after we do all we can. And I said, "Woo, whoa, 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 time out. <laughs> that, that's not grace. Be, because grace is unmerited favor. And, and in the system you've just described, the, the way one receives salvation, it, it's something you earn. It's, it's something you, you do the right things, and you ingratiate yourself in the right way, and then it's a favor you receive. It's a reward you get, and I, that's not grace. And I proceeded to explain uh, what the Bible teaches about grace and what Romans says about how God gives us. He imputes his righteousness on account of belief. And the other gentleman who was with it, them um, it just he, he, he kind of just exclaimed in a rather incredulous tone. He said, there's no such thing as a get-out-of-jail-free card. In other words, like, it, just, it can't be that easy. You just can't believe and expect to be saved on the basis of that alone. And I said, uh, now, now you're closer to understanding the gospel. But he wasn't ready to embrace that. The, the, the fact that that, our, that our, our salvation could entirely be a gift from God, because from His perspective, if it's really all grace, then what's the incentive to live a an upright and virtuous life? Well, we're going to find that answer in Romans six. Look with me again at verses one to two. He says, "What what what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means." How can we who died to sin still live in it? So at the close of chapter 5, we looked at last week, we read, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And if that's the case, what's to stop the Christian from saying, how about I just keep, I'll just continue sinning, right? Because won't my additional sin make grace all the more impressive? Won't it make Jesus out to be an even greater Savior, and Paul gives this very strong repudiation of this idea. He says, by no means. Or some translations render this, absolutely not, or certainly not, or God forbid. It's this Greek expression, meganoita. And actually, it appears ten times in the letter. And so, just, just say that, meganoita. Meganoita. This is, this is the... Um, Expression uh, you can give if you ever want to kind of say perish the thought, but you want to sound spiritual in the process. So, like you know, kids, you know, do you want a second helping of lima beans? With no, it's it's mega noita. You know, um, do you want to watch a Hallmark movie? Mega noita. You know, um, the, the, uh, and uh, he, Paul gives this really strong repudiation uh, of this idea that we should go on sinning. He he says by no means. And the reason he does this is he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? There at the end of verse 2, if you're following along in your Bible. And then what follows in verses 3 to 14 is really an expansion of this assertion. So I want to just take a minute and help us understand the point that's being made here. What does it mean that we died to sin? Well, let's start with what it doesn't mean. There are four common misinterpretations. Some take this to mean that a believer is no longer responsive to sin. So in the same way that a corpse is unresponsive to physical stimuli, the Christian will be unresponsive to sin. When temptation comes, we'll just be immune to it. But there's a few problems with this. Uh, The biggest one being that it really doesn't square with experience, does it? I mean, even the most mature Christians I know would say that they still struggle with sin. The other problem with this view is that if a Christian doesn't have any desire to sin, then why are verses like 11 to 14 in the Bible Why would the apostle write, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus? Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. If the desire to sin is dead, why would Scripture have to make this appeal? It wouldn't make any sense, would it? You don't have to urge someone who is unresponsive to sin not to be responsive to it. So let's rule out that option. Maybe, here's a second option. Maybe dead to sin means that Christians should die to sin, that we ought to die to sin. And of course it's correct to urge Christians not to sin, and we find that commendation in the Bible, but that's not the point of verse 2. Look again at the tense of the verb. Paul's not saying that we ought to die to sin. Rather, he's asserting that we did die to sin. He's telling us something that's already true of us if we're Christians, So let's talk about a third option. Maybe we died to sin means that we have renounced sin. And of course, uh, this is true in some sense. Part of the Christian experience is repentance, which is a turning away from sin. We renounce a life of sin and we commit to following Jesus. But I don't think that's the point that's being made in this verse. The focus is not here on something that we do, but rather on something that's been done to us. It's not that, you know, we have gone and we've renounced sin. Rather, it's we died to sin. So the emphasis isn't on us or our activity, some action we've done, anything we've done on our part, but on what has happened to us. So what then is meant of this expression, we died to sin? Well, what Scripture is teaching here is that the moment we become Christians, we are no longer under the reign. of or we could say the rule or the realm of sin. We're, we're dead to that. Remember how chapter 5 ended? We're told that as sin reigned in death, great grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the apostle, what he's doing here is he's contrasting, we could say the reign or the rule of sin with the reign or the rule of grace. He's saying there there are two dominions. There there are two realms. There's the reign, the rule of of sin, and then we have grace on the other hand. And everyone who is not in Christ is under the rule and the reign of sin. And everyone that is in Christ, everyone who is a Christian has been transferred out of this realm, and now we are under a new rule. We're under a new reign, the reign of grace. So if we think back to last week, to chapter 5, said every human being they're either in Adam, and if you're in Adam, you're under the reign of, of sin, but if you're in Christ, you're under the reign of grace. It's a reign of life. This one's a reign of death. Think also of last week of verse 17 in chapter 5. It says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Or we could think of a parallel passage like Colossians 1.13, which says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Perhaps this will be a helpful illustration. Uh, During the Second World War, uh, the countries of Western Europe capitulated very quickly under the onslaught uh, of the German Blitzkrieg. And when it became apparent that France was going to fall, uh, the British government spirited out uh, a young brigadier general by the name of Charles de Gaulle. And shortly thereafter, uh, the French government did fall They negotiated an armistice. And the result of that was uh, the establishment of a new French state called the Regime de Vichy, which is essentially a German puppet state. And all of those who were in France were now under the reign. They were under the authority of this new authoritarian government that could dictate to them. But de Gaulle was not in France. He was in England, which was free which was no longer under the tyranny of this government. And the British government gave de Gaulle the opportunity uh, to to address all his people through the the British Broadcasting Company, the BBC. And he said this on his very first address. He said, I, General de Gaulle, now in London, appeal to all French officers and men who are at present on British soil or maybe in the future to get in touch with me. And he launched the Free French Movement. His position in London changed his status. He was no longer under the reign of that authoritarian government. Now, in a similar way, Jesus' death makes it possible for our position to change. It makes it possible for Scripture to say that we are dead to the reign of sin. And we're now under a different reign, the reign of grace. And the way that this transfer is effected it's through one's union, or we could say one's incorporation into Christ. We looked at Romans six two, which declares that we died to sin. But when we re- read on, we think of Romans chapter six verses eight nine and ten. We're reminded that it's Christ who died first. Look with me at verse ten. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives. To God. So what happens is through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus brings an end to the reign of sin. He is completely out of this territory altogether. It's true to say that Christ died for our sins. This is like the focus of, I would say, uh, Romans 3, 4, and 5. We in fact find that in Romans 5:8 that Christ died for our sins. But in Romans Six, it's not just that he died for sins, it says in, in verse 10 that he died to sin. There's a small change in preposition. One, he died for sin. In Romans 6, he died to sin. And, and, and why that's significant is because it changes the meaning. So in Romans 3, Jesus is, is paying the penalty for our sins. But here we see that he breaks sin's power. It's through our union with Jesus that we're translated, we're transferred out from under the reign of sin and into the reign of grace. So what I'd like to do now, I'm just going to read again, verses uh, 3 through 8. And I want you to note the emphasis on our union, on our identification with Christ, and the number of times our participation with Jesus in his death is emphasized. There's going to be a reference in every Verse. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his, help me out, death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So why can't we go on sinning? Well, Paul says, just just think about your baptism. Baptism by immersion in water is an outward picture of an inward change that's taken place. When we become Christians, we are put into Christ. So that word baptism, it can be used literally. It means to dip, to immerse, or it can take on a figurative meaning, which is meaning like to, to be put into. And this is why uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says, "...for in one spirit we were all baptized." Into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. So our baptism in water points to a, a spiritual reality, or we could say a spiritual or, or a figurative baptism that's already been accomplished by the Holy Spirit the moment we believe. We, we are put into Jesus. So what happens is when we're immersed in the water, we're buried in the water, and it's just a picture of our identification with Jesus when we're raised back up. It's a picture of of us being with him, participating with him in his death and burial and resurrection. This passage continues. He says, For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. When we are united with Christ, whatever is true of him is now true of us. And since Christ died and he's free from the reign of sin, we too are freed from the reign of sin. And since Christ rose to new life, we too can go and we can live a new life we're alive to God. So the, the reason the Christian can't go on sinning is because that it's, it's inconsistent with our identity. The Christian message isn't just go, be like Christ. It's way more powerful than that. It's you are now in Christ. So if I walk out of here, I go through those double doors, we're on the coffee bar, I say, hey, who wants to come join me in some sin? That's just not a mistake, that's a contradiction in terms. Because what I'm doing, it it, it, it contradicts who I am in Christ. The the Christian life is is the living out of what it means to be in Christ, to be united to Him. But you might ask, how can you say that you are no longer under the reign of sin? Do you still sin? And I would say yes. You might ask me, well, do you still struggle with the power of temptation? And I would say yes. You might say, well, then how can you say that the Christian is dead to the rule or to the reign of sin? I would say we need to differentiate between our position and our experience. So positionally, we're still in Christ, but that might not always align with our experience and I, I think uh, another military analogy might be helpful here. My wife, Stephanie, and I have been reading the Chronicles of Narnia uh, to our son, Ian, at bedtime. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, the evil white witch is in control of Narnia. Have you anybody seen the movie, read the book, C.S. Lewis? You guys know what I'm talking about here. So it's Narnia, it, it's always winter, and it's never Christmas, Right? Not exactly good times for the people of Narnia, but Aslan enters the picture. And uh, a, a good army is mobilized, and it's led by Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy. And this good army goes, and, and it, it defeats uh, the evil witch and her troops. And a, and a new government is established. Uh, there's a new capital, new, new seat uh, of government, the news, new rule in the land. But what happens is there are still those who are loyal to the witch who live out on the fringe. You can think of them as a guerrilla army. And they're opposed to the new and rightful reign of the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. In the story, here's what C.S. Lewis tells us. He says, For a long time, there would be news of evil things lurking in the wilder parts of the forest, a haunting here and a killing there, a glimpse of a werewolf one month and a rumor of a hag the next. <laughs> He's telling us that even though these forces could never get back into power, they could still create havoc at times for the people in Narnia. You know, sin's like that. It's a guerrilla force, it still wants to be your master, even though it can't, even though you're out from under its reign. It, sin is opposed to the new and rightful reign of grace. And it's waging war within us still, even though it cannot rule us. And at times, we may yield to the influence of sin, but we no longer have to obey it. It can no longer dictate to us. The the, the key to waging the war is to recognize that we are no longer under the dominion of sin. When Paul says, don't don't you know, when he begins verse 2 that way, he's reminding the reader of their identity, of their new position, and and, and the new power that they're under. They're under the reign of grace. And I think this is what helps us make sense of the encouragement, these exhortations that we find in verses 11, 12, 13, and 14. Uh, The apostle tells us this. He says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God, in Christ Jesus. Or we could say the NIV is, so you must count yourselves dead to sin. Or the, the old King James or the new King James, so you must reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. We must live as if this is true. He goes on to say, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Notice, God does not command the Christian to be dead to sin. God tells the Christian that they're dead to sin. And then he commands us to go and live like that's true. To go and act on it. We're to go and we're to be who we are. Have you ever heard the expression, don't act like a baby? You, you familiar with this one? But you wouldn't say that to a baby, would you? I mean, if, if I, I think back, I guess, maybe 11 and a half years ago, if I've got my like, you know, six-month-old daughter in my arms, and she was reaching for a pacifier or a blanket. I wouldn't be like, come on, don't act like a baby. I wouldn't do that, would I? But, but what about this? What about if you're out to eat at a restaurant and you, you look over the next booth over and I've got like uh, a stuffed animal under one arm and a little blankie with me and I'm sucking my thumb and I've got a bib on and the waiter comes to take my order and I, I, I ask for um, some purified peas mixed with some carrots in a glass jar And some dry Cheerios that I start eating with my hands, and like half of them go in my mouth. You might be justified in coming over and telling me not to act like a baby, right? There's no reason for a grown man to do those childish things. It doesn't make any sense. It would be inconsistent with who I am as an adult. And it's the same way when we sin as Christians. When we're sin, what we're doing is we're, we're failing to recognize who we are in Christ. You, you can't think about being united to Christ and under the reign of grace and still go in sin at the same time. Uh, the, the Christian can't deliberately go on sinning because it isn't true of who they are. We still might sin, but we won't keep on abiding in sin because sin will have no dominion over us. We're under grace. There's a new power at work in our lives. Remember, remember the thesis statement of the whole letter? Remember Romans 1:16? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? Say it with me. The power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and also to the Greek. There's a new power at work in our lives. We're empowered to go and to serve Him when we're in Christ We're united to Him, and we're empowered by His Spirit. And one of the ways that we are strengthened in our union with Christ is the celebration of the Lord's Supper. This meal is a remembrance of what Jesus did for us on the cross, and then it's a seal of all those benefits that are now ours, that are now given to us. It is a pledge of our communion with Him. And this is why... If we go to 1 Corinthians 10, 16, we see this. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And so when we partake of the elements in the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of our fellowship with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. Prior to celebrating the Lord's Supper, I want to share with you uh, instruction that the scripture gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We find these words For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper. And drinks judgment on himself. This meal that we're about to celebrate is open to all those who have placed their faith in Jesus. But Scripture also gives a warning against participating in an unworthy manner. And you might say, Well, you know, what what does that mean? Well, eating and drinking in a worthy manner doesn't mean that you have had to live your life in, in such an excellent way as to somehow deserve God's blessing. That, that would contradict the, the gospel. It's not that we have to somehow uh, live such exceptional lives that we've earned the right to partake these elements. Rather, it means we're to have the right frame of mind, we're to have the right attitude of heart. And so those who are worthy partakers of, uh, of these elements are those who recognize that apart from the grace of God, apart from Jesus' death in our place, that, that we wouldn't have acceptance, that we wouldn't have right standing before God. And so really the person who is worthy to receive the elements is the person who in some ways recognizes that they're unworthy and then approaches God with this heart of gratitude for the, all that He's done for us. And so what I want to do now is I want to do exactly what Scripture encourages us to do, just provide this space, this moment, some silence where we can examine ourselves And it could be, as we enter into this time, that the Lord uh, would prompt you to confess some sin in your life that has previously gone unconfessed and ask for for forgiveness. Or the Lord would prompt you to go and ask for forgiveness for someone that you have sinned against uh, because we know that He values unity and reconciliation. Or it could be, in this moment of silence, that the Lord would... Open the eyes of your heart that there might be some measure of conviction where you would realize maybe you're still under the reign of sin and you would want to be transferred into the reign of grace. You would want to be in Christ. And if that's you, uh, after we've had a a moment of silence, uh, I'll lead us in a prayer and I'm going to give you the opportunity to accept Jesus as your Savior. So let's go to the Lord now and prepare ourselves to receive the cup and the bread. Our God in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the the tangible reminder. We thank you for the elements that we're about to partake that remind us that your goodness is running after us. Lord, you know the condition of every heart in this room. You know the ways that all of us need to be strengthened. Lord, you know some of us need the blessed assurance that we are yours, that you have us, that you'll never leave us and forsake us. Lord, some of us just need reminded that your grace is bigger than our sin, that it doesn't matter how many times we've failed, that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, some of us need correction. Some of us need to be reminded that we are united to you, that we have been bought with the price. Lord, as we partake of these elements, please strengthen us in the ways that we need to be strengthened. And for the one here who needs to Celebrate this meal for the first time as one who is in Christ. If that's you, I want to give you the opportunity right now just to to say a prayer in the quietness of your own heart and accept Jesus as your Savior. You can pray something like this. You Say, God, I recognize that I have sinned and that my sin separates me from you. And I confess I need a Savior. Thank you for sending Jesus to live the perfect life I could never live and to bear the consequence that I deserve to bear. I believe that he died and that he rose again. and I place my faith in him. And I commit to living to you Please fill me with your spirit and help me be dead to sin and alive to God. And all God's people said, amen, amen.